forum for frank talk about what people do for a living. Work Stew. Hello and welcome to Work Stew. It's July 21st, 2015, and this is episode number 92. I'm Kate Gase Walton. I'm the editor of Work Stew, an online collection of essays and interviews in which people ponder their work lives. In this episode, I speak with Arthur Chu, the writer and former Jeopardy! champion. Technically, the podcast is on hold right now. There just haven't been enough hours in the day to get these episodes out. But a piece that Arthur wrote for Salon a few weeks ago caught my eye, and he kindly agreed to have a quick discussion with me about it. So I'm talking this evening with Arthur Chu, who many of you uh, will recognize as a um, multi-game Jeopardy champion. Um, Arthur has gone on to become a very interesting writer and columnist, and it's uh, one of your pieces, Arthur, that caught my eye that I wanted to at least start out discussing. Okay. You wrote a piece about a movie called Advantageous, which is a sci-fi film that I confess I have not yet seen, Um, but something about it struck you as um, kind of resonant for your generation and your generation as you search for jobs. Can you just kind of tee that up, what you were saying in that piece? Sure. I mean, um, it's it's not a new theme by any means, but the thing that struck me about Advantageous was that unlike a lot of movies about the future, um, just the 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 way it was um, shot. Oh, it's a very quiet film. It's it's you know a very sort of lyrical, um, very melancholy film, and um, the the vision of the future that it shows is one with with a and instead of like the typical grimy, you know, crime-ridden cyberpunk future, um, was a future where everything was very pretty, everything was very well maintained, but um, it just felt like there wasn't much activity, that fewer and fewer people were doing anything, that the streets were empty, and that the main conflict of the movie comes from the uh, protagonist um, worrying about becoming obsolete, that she's not going to be needed for a job anymore, and she's going to join the many ranks of homeless people who um, apparently just hang around idle for most of the day because there's nothing for them to do. You know, and that's the the idea that the, the real scary thing about the future isn't, you know, these lurid fantasies of machines destroying us or becoming human, but just making us not useful, making us superfluous. Right. And now you graduated, I did a little bit of research on you in, in 2008, so right into the start of the recession. Right. And, and one thing that, that got me thinking about, because I graduated in 91, and it was also a time that was hard to get jobs, is at that time, while we all grumbled about how difficult our job searches were and how we expected to find jobs more easily, what was not on our minds was the idea that, you know, machines were taking away our work. Um, we were more just thinking, hey, the economy is depressed. There aren't as many opportunities out there. Um, are, are you and your peers truly focused on the fact that machines are taking away your work? Or was that more that this movie got you thinking about that particular angle? Well, that I... 
that idea is definitely in the background whenever we talk about jobs. I mean, right now we're in the middle of a recovery. The unemployment rate is technically going down. But one of the things that people are talking about is the jobs that went away are being replaced by lower quality jobs, that the full-time jobs are going away. The expectation of being able to work full-time for a job with benefits has gone away, and a lot more people who are technically employed are doing, you know, piecemeal work. Um, and that the that more and more the types of jobs that people relied on for lifetime employment are just gone. Um, the manufacturing jobs, more and more we have what we see as like service industry jobs, right? Um, and so every wonderful new convenience that our generation celebrates, you know, um, is also a convenience that you can really clearly tell is getting rid of, you know, disintermediation is getting rid of middlemen, but also getting rid of jobs. Right now, there's people who are talking about how if we raise the minimum wage for fast food workers, um, they're just going to replace fast food workers with an iPad app, right? Um, and we're finding out that these minimum wage jobs that used to be considered jobs for teenagers, like entry-level jobs or jobs that people are working at their entire lives, people with families are working multiple uh, minimum wage jobs just to um, just to pay the bills, and one of the things that you know, uh, one of the plot points in Advantageous is that the protagonist has been to graduate school. She's a highly educated person, but her job is essentially being a spokeswoman. That her job is to be a pretty face, right? And that most of the quote unquote people jobs that are out there now are competitive. They're commission-based. You know, most most of the jobs that you can get are sales jobs or related to sales jobs, and that it's definitely been the experience of me and a lot of my peers that we end up in those positions, even though that's not what we wanted to do because that's the only way you can get hired. You know, that's where um, hiring is gravitating to because that's what you need a person for. Still, is to talk to people and convince them to do things. Right. So I, I'm interested with that as sort of the larger backdrop to know a little bit more about your story since you graduated. There have obviously been parts of it that are sort of extraordinary, like, uh, you know, a winning streak on Jeopardy. I'm sure not right. all of your peers have done that. But what have been other parts of your path in these recent years? What kind of work have you been doing? Um, so I did graduate in the middle of the recession. I had a very difficult time getting hired at first. Um, and my first job was as a tour guide in Washington, D.C. And the really telling thing about that was I couldn't get hired just as a tour guide. The competition for people just doing walking tours and that sort of thing is very high. Um, so I ended up getting a job driving a tour bus and giving a tour while driving. And I was not good at that, right? Um, but that's one of the few things that you can, that, um, you know, if you could drive a commercial vehicle, that's a barrier to entry, right? A pretty high one, but it's one that preserved this, like, field where um, people like me with, like, a history degree could still, could still get some kind of job doing, you know, what we'd been trained to do. And... And that's one of those things where it's like, one of, one of the, what's one of the few things that people can still do is drive, right? Once one of the things that everyone's telling you you can get a job in in the new economy is like drive for Uber or drive for Lyft, right? Um, 
for now, right? But I ended up losing that job because I couldn't drive very well, and I got in a couple of fender benders, and you know, um, that was the important thing, not my ability to like speak or teach. You know, I tried getting teaching jobs for a while, very competitive, got shut out because there were people with many years of experience competing for entry level positions. Um, in the end, the like first um, quote unquote like real job, white collar office job I got was this very depressing thing where I was working for a, a startup doing business development and sales. And I was terrible at it, you know, but it was a thing where where um, the one thing people needed me to do was not actually do anything substantive, but stand around in a suit acting like I knew what I was talking about and trying to get people to invest in this company, right? Um, and I there wasn't really the money to justify that job, but as long as I could convince my boss that I was, you know, it was more like me selling my position to my boss than selling anybody else on, on my position. Right. But that was what kept me employed there for like a year and, and like basically BAS. Right. And like, I met so many other young people in my same position who are doing that same kind of BS. Like most of us, would rotate out of those positions in a year. Most of us weren't long there long term. Most of us weren't actually doing anything, but we had like wormed our way into middle class life by getting this position where we could like convince other people that we were doing something, right? Convince people that we were going to create the next Facebook or that we were working for somebody who was going to create the next Facebook. Um, a bubble, but before kind of. I hear the next twist, which you have me on the edge of your seat, I've got to say, but before I hear the next twist, what, when you were in college, did you think you were going to do afterwards? Like, are you one of these people who had a clear notion of what you wanted to do and it got derailed or was it a big, wide open question for you? You know what the funny thing is, is I wanted to do what I'm doing now, which is writing um, and like doing opinion pieces and that kind of thing. Um, but there was no clear path to going there. I thought about going to journalism school, but you know, journalism school, journalism schools collapsed. Everyone said, Oh God, don't go to journalism school. Like almost immediately upon my graduation. Um, it really was one of those things where I was kind of looking for something that fit my passions doing theater, studying history, that kind of thing, but nothing, there was no clear path for me, you know, and a lot of people who didn't have a clear path had done fine before my time, but I happened to be in the part of the cohort where suddenly that wasn't okay anymore. Yeah. So where did you go from the biz dev role? Um, I ended up getting, and this was, this was a great thing. You know, I ended up swallowing my pride and getting a family connection. My, my in-laws knew someone who knew someone and I got an entry-level job at an insurance company in Ohio. And my wife had a good steady EPA job in DC, but didn't want to work there anymore. So the, the turning point was like, Hey, I'll take the boring office job and told my wife, you know, you can be the one to like drift around for a while and we'll see what happens. And that was actually, I was really lucky. I only got that job. You know, I only was even considered for that job. Um, given that I lived many states away because of a connection, but it was like a revelation to me how, how freeing it was to have like a real job where I knew I wouldn't get fired because I was actually 
you know, doing a real job, contributing something instead of just BSing all day, you know, and having that steady paycheck as a, a backstop to like, you know, whatever, whatever other risks I might be taking. Um, and, and it was like really humbling for me. Like this was an entry level job. It wasn't, you know, a dream job, but it was, I was very, very lucky to be in a position to be able to get that job. If I hadn't had that security, then none of the other stuff that happened with Jeopardy would even have been possible, you know? Mm. Hmm. So did, were you working at that job through your stint on Jeopardy? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't quit my day job until um, this year. Okay. And now you're writing full-time? Yes, writing and uh, speaking. And is that... Um, feeling like something that is sustainable or do you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and think, Oh man, I need a plan B. <laughs> I mean, for now the jeopardy winnings are my plan B or they're like my safety net. Um, I've, I, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't had that safety net. And even then it took me a long time to push myself to the point of doing it. You know, I could have done it last year, but it just felt like such a scary thing to do to let go of a full-time job. Um, but it was only when I was started making enough of an income from writing and speaking that I could tell myself, okay, I'm not touching the Jeopardy money, right? I'm, I'm still making enough of an income to stay afloat. But it was still really scary. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where I still it still feels really surreal. There are a lot of people just as talented as me. I, I know... I personally know people just as talented as me who don't have this opportunity and it's, it's completely random happenstance, you know, how I, I lucked into this. Right. Right. So just to, to wind up, I know, uh, I think you're in Ohio and it's, uh, it's obviously later there, but coming back to the piece you wrote, you know, it ends on a, on a fairly grim note, right. Of, uh, if this is the, the vision of the future, it's, it's not looking good. Is that, um, sort of truly where you come out emotionally and where you find a lot of your peers come out? Or if there are sources of optimism, what, what are they? Well, I mean, um, that's the funny thing, right? They already made a machine that can win on Jeopardy. <laughs> they, they did that years ago. And now, and that's, that's actually the point, is that the Watson program, it wasn't just Jeopardy was a test bed for showing that a machine can do people jobs. You know, that Watson can take natural language questions and search a database. My job, what I was doing was basically my boss wanted to know something and I'd look it up on the internet. And, you know, I was slightly better at research than a machine would have been. But if a machine can just do that, right? What need is there for me? What need is there if a machine can put together information into a report? What is there for most, what use is there for most office workers, you know? And the thing that I understand why people got mad at me when I was at Jeopardy, because the strategy that I used on Jeopardy was to mimic the machine, right? To act as much like those, like Watson as possible. And people were like, this is what disruption means is people, you know, taking the human element out of everything and acting mechanical in order to, to win. And that scares me. It bothers me. So I empathize with that. You know, I, I feel like, um, it's upsetting because it, it shouldn't be upsetting. It should be liberating to know that machines can do more and more of this work that we have to do so that we would, could be free to, you know, do the things that we want to do, but the world hasn't caught up with that. 
my hope, and uh, the people that I talk to all believe this, is that eventually we'll get to a point where we have something like a guaranteed minimum income, right? Where we'll, we say machines are able to do so much of what we used to do that we don't need to like crawl over each other and compete with each other just to live, that, um, that we can all reap the benefits of living in this highly automated world. But right now, we don't seem to be getting there. Right now, it's, it's still everything is turning into more and more of a winner-take-all kind of world, you know, and that does bother me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's it's really been a pleasure to connect with you and to hear a little bit about your story and uh, see who is behind these super smart pieces that I've been reading. So keep them coming. Thanks. I really, uh, really enjoy them. They're very provocative. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up the interview for today. Thanks again very much to my guest, Arthur Chu. As I mentioned earlier, the podcast is on hold for a few months. What is happening right now, though, is another writing contest. You can find information about that contest on the website, worksdo.com. The prompt for this contest has to do with mistakes. Write about a mistake you've made on the job. Uh, The due date or the deadline is August 15th. And as always, there's a prize. Thanks very much, and bye for now.